0: Hello and welcome back to Spotlight, the monthly podcast that discusses issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Becko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease and Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alice Lee and Professor Ian Sinner, both at Hey Children's NHS Foundation Trust and the University of Liverpool. Alice is a Paediatric Registrar and Clinical Innovation Fellow, and Ian is a Consultant in Paediatric Respiratory Medicine. Welcome both. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: So today we'll be talking about your paper, Child Poverty and Health Inequalities in the United Kingdom, A Guide for Paediatricians, which was written by yourselves and co-authors Camilla Kingdon and Max Davey, both at Evelina London's Children's Hospital, and Dr. Daniel Horkut at Liverpool University. Before we dive into the paper, maybe it would be good to start with noting that child poverty and health inequalities are a worldwide problem and every nation state will have within their borders children living in poverty and as a consequence would be unable to achieve their potential. Globally, it's not as bad as it has been, but it was pretty awful <laughs> to start with. Although I'm laughing, it's not not a good thing. And we're not where we would like to be. So Alice, that brings me to you and ask you, what, what's the aim of your paper?
2: I guess from, from our point of view, there are probably three main aims. And as you just said, I think child poverty, especially when I've been through training, you think of child poverty as being in different countries not the UK, and did some teaching recently and typed child poverty into Google Images. And it was either Victorian era Britain or, you know, places like Africa or Southeast Asia. So one of it was to try and highlight how much of a big issue this is in the UK and what we're facing here. And then the second aim was to kind of explain to pediatricians just how important Childhood poverty is to our everyday lives and how it is pervasive and impacts every aspect of a child's health and well-being and every single child that we're seeing. And then the third aim really was to provide kind of a framework to understand how poverty impacts child health and impacts our jobs as pediatricians, and really importantly as well, to empower pediatricians to have the tools to tackle that at many levels.
0: Mm.
1: I think that, that that's exactly right and our thinking on this coincided with the leadership at the Royal College thinking about the same thing and I know Camilla Kingdon who's our president of the RCPCH was very keen to develop a toolkit for that very last point that you've said you know how do we translate this into something tangible for for people to do on the shop floor uh, and this paper really accompanies that toolkit so things are timely at the moment everyone seems to be moving in the in the same direction and there's more of an acceptance of of the impact that poverty has on child well-being and opportunity.
0: It's quite sobering to think that we're talking about childhood poverty in the UK in 2023 and rather than just hand-wringing the paper tries to go from okay so this is not a good place to be and what can we do about it? But it might be good first to s- say a few things about poverty. So how do we understand poverty?
2: Yeah, so the issue is in the UK is that there's many different ways of understanding poverty and different organisations will use different ways as well. So that's why in this paper, we try to focus on the fact that actually the overarching issue with poverty is that a family do not have enough money to participate in society and to meet an acceptable way of living as deemed by their society. I mean, I don't know if it's within the ream of this podcast to talk a little bit to help paediatricians understand when, you know, governments talk about relative low income versus absolute low income and how other organisations like the the Tree Foundation talk about minimum income standards.
0: I think so. I think it's. I think it's helpful to, to, to have a bit of an idea because, as you as you allude to, sort of politicians might use uh, words as poverty. Poverty is depicted differently on the internet, as uh, you know, a quick Google search as you just outlined. But how, in the context of health professionals dealing with yeah. children on a daily basis, so uh, and wanting to do something about it, what is the it? Yes. Um,
2: so kind of UK government will look at absolute and relative low income. They don't actually call it poverty as well. And so the relative low income is a family who's earning 60% less than the median income for that year. And absolute low income is immediate 60% less than the median income of a baseline year, which is usually about 2010. And those different definitions will give you different numbers year on year. So, for example, this year or the past couple of years, the UK government have just put out a um, a report back in April, actually, because of things like COVID and the cost of living crisis that has impacted everyone's real wage and everyone's real income. The relative low poverty numbers aren't really going up. And in fact, during COVID went down because your highest earners were earning a bit less. And your lowest earners, especially with the 20 pound universal credit uplift, were earning a bit more. But then if you then look at the absolute low income numbers, they've shot up because actually just because we're all feeling the squeeze doesn't mean that people living in poverty aren't feeling even more of a squeeze. So if you use the absolute low income numbers from 2021 to 2022, an extra 800,000 people were living in poverty in the UK and obviously that's just looking at numbers and as we've alluded to before poverty is all about do you have enough money to participate in society which is why it's really useful to look at other definitions such as the minimum income standard which is set by you know a citizens committee of what's the bare minimum you need to earn to be able to effectively participate in society so not just pay your bills but can you afford to buy your children's schoolware and can you afford you know, school trips and stuff like that? And that's a much more kind of holistic way of understanding the, the barriers that people face when they're living in poverty. Another way that you'll probably see, especially in research when we're looking at poverty and deprivation is the indices of multiple deprivation. So they look at kind of neighborhood level deprivation and similarly, it gives a bit more of a holistic outline of deprivation than just looking at income because it looks at crime rates it looks at employment rates it looks at education rates but that's much more of a neighborhood level rather than an individual in your house how you coping level.
0: Mm, Thanks Alice. Ian did you want to come in on that?
1: I think you, you and Alice have both raised a really important point about our perception of poverty in the u k and one of the things that has struck many people is that we we consider the u k as a rich country because comparatively it is you know our our sort of levels of of wealth across the country are, are are the sixth highest in in the world, but when you look at poverty it's important to consider inequality so we are a rich country but that wealth is not equally distributed so the 100 richest people in the country who are on you know the times rich list the top 100 people own the same as the poorest one third of the country, the poorest 19 million people. So the wealth in the UK is very unequally distributed. And and obviously, children will face the consequences of that. And, And globally, the picture is even more stark. So the richest 22 men in the world own the same wealth as all the 325 million women living in Africa. So There is wealth in the world and there is wealth in this country, but it's very unequally distributed. And the UK has a very high rate of that inequality. So we are a rich country, but with many poor people living within it.
0: Thanks for mentioning that, uh, Ian. I, I think it also speaks to sort of how you define things will allow you to tell a certain story. And and I wondered from our point of view, I I think one of the questions as individuals, but also in society, is to sort of how do we look after generations to come uh, and and the current younger generation? I think that's a shared responsibility. So having these stark inequalities, in my opinion, is a choice of society. It does not need to be. So it does not need to be so that there are children in the UK, let's focus on that for now, that are unable to achieve their abilities, their potential. And so I'm delighted that as a society, we seem to be moving towards being able to talk about it. But then you also need to be able to do something about it. When we were talking just now about how do you define poverty, Is that really a helpful question or or would the question be more how do we ensure that the children's needs are met in this country?
1: It's a very good question and I'll answer some of it and then I'll hand over to Alice because she worked with Professor Sir Michael Marmot last year to write a report on fuel poverty that, that, that was very important. And one of the things which is very clear is that we should be moving towards proportionate universalism, and I'll, I'll let Alice sort of talk through talk through that. You're exactly right about how do we look after children? How do we prepare the world to be a place where they can survive and thrive and fulfil their potential? And for me, one of the key things that is a barrier and a problem, you know, focusing on the UK and, and wider and for many countries, is that we don't revere children the way that we should. Uh, you, you know, for many of us who listening to this podcast, children are like the most important thing in the world by an absolute mile. And is, you know, the only ideology which is important is that children are top of the list. But this isn't reflected in in policies. It's not reflected in how we invest in our children. There are strong arguments that we should be focusing on children. There are strong health arguments in the sense that if we think through adult diseases that are causing problems and reductions in life expectancy, most of these you can trace back to things that went wrong in the early years or even antenatally, particularly in the respiratory sort of system, we see that diseases of adults are basically diseases of childhood that manifest in adulthood. So there is a health argument for investing early in children, and there are strong economic arguments for investing early in children as well. And the Nobel uh, Prize winning economist Heckman has has discussed this and and shows that you get your biggest bang for your buck by prevention. It's better to keep up than catch up. There are strong moral arguments for investing in children. There are strong... Basically, there are strong arguments, whichever way you look at it, to say that the way that we focus our priorities in this country are that children are not top of the pile and alongside that women are not top of the pile as well and obviously children and women come together and so if we are going to start to address what happens to children we need to make sure that that, that, that we address what happens to women and pregnant women and around the time of birth as well. I think the the, the second problem that we've had, which you've alluded to already, this idea that it's good that we are now talking about this, is that when we think of children in poverty, we still see poverty as a thing of huge stigma. And you were quite right to say that poverty is not a natural thing. It's a man-made artificial construct. We choose not to prioritise children. We choose not to end child poverty and so if we are going to start to address these things we need a much a much wider approach to both of these problems and we need to accept that these are things that we can overcome. I think in terms of the question about whether we focus on children or children in poverty i think the answer is both all children are special but when we look at health inequalities and mortality inequalities and educational inequalities in the uk uh, we see that some children are more special than, than than others so it's it's a case of raising the bar in general but also making sure that all children have a good uh, a, a good shot at it and a good chance to to achieve. Uh, and in order to do that, we must remember that whenever we do good things or or aim to do good things, there's a strong chance that the people that are most in need of benefit of those things are the people least likely to benefit. And that in essence is the inverse care law, which is very well described and which Alice touches on in the paper.
0: Mm, thanks, Ian. Alice? I mean Ian said that really well.
2: I think As he mentioned, I think a lot of our conversations revolve around the fact that there is a moral imperative to protect our most vulnerable children, but a lot of organisations outside of healthcare take on that responsibility of advocating for the moral imperative really well. And what we really bring to the table as paediatricians is on top of that moral imperative it's to say that, you know, in every aspect, in every way you want to measure how well our society is doing. It's really important to deal with child health and specifically child health inequalities. It's going to make the biggest difference throughout those individuals and whole life courses as well. And I think, you know, when Ian was talking about the inverse care law as well and talking a, a bit about um, what Sir Michael Marmot talks about, which is the proportionate universalism. One of our colleagues at the University of Liverpool, um, Professor David Taylor Robinson, has done loads of really great work looking at how government policies impact child health outcomes as well. And whilst some of his papers and some of the evidence is really bleak to show, you know, how pervasive child health inequalities are and how government policies impact on that, and we know that in austerity... The poorest areas of the UK had the biggest cuts per head within those councils compared to the richest areas, which really widened those disparities. Um, But you can also look at different policies which showed that actually, you know, before austerity and before 2010, we were beginning to close that gap with things like Sure Start and focusing on those early years, those first zero to five years. We were actually making you know, small headway and some improvements in child health outcomes so we can do it again.
0: Yes. So there's something about acknowledging the bleak situation but then not despair. Yes. There are absolutely things that we can do.
1: If we choose to do so, we're not helpless. Uh, Alice, are you okay to to tell Rachel about the proportionate universalism that Sir Michael Marmot describes?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, he's the um, absolute godfather when it comes to looking at health equity. And the idea is that, you know, especially in the UK, we talk about universal healthcare, but actually, there's a lot of barriers, societal barriers to universal services that we provide. So the idea should be is that services should be available and accessible to everyone. But we really need to start focusing our resources and funding to reach out to those communities, to those populations that we know are going to face barriers accessing that universal healthcare or whatever service uh, you want to focus on as well and um, to make it an equitable society rather than just, a you know, a just society.
0: Ah, uh, so, well, we could go into equi- differences <laughs> between equity, equality and justice. Yes. <laughs> I just wondered whether we could go into some nitty gritty in terms of numbers we've talked about poverty inability to access healthcare as as we would like based on deprivation how does that pan out in the real world what does that what does it mean for say a child if we look at the deprivation index for instance mm. in the 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 differences between the least and the most deprived areas what does that look like?
1: So in terms of the nuts and bolts of the finances what we see and and the model that Alice was presenting in the paper is the model that we that we've been thinking about in our group for some time which is that there's a difference between being broke which is not having money in your pocket in your wallet and and being in in poverty which is also you know in real terms, not having money in your piggy bank as well uh, and not having money set aside. And this was something that we saw very clearly through the pandemic, that the people that were hardest hit were the people who didn't have the most resource to, to fall back on. And compared to other countries, such as Scandinavian countries, where people's savings are, are better, we, we were hit hard by that here. So if we look at the, the differences in financial resource, we see that the minimum income and the minimum wage and the average wage in the UK are, are are low compared to the costs of living in the UK. So we know that anybody on minimum wage will be below the average income line, the median income line. And we know that people on minimum income were perched perilously above the cutoff called the minimum income standard, which is what you need to, to be able to function in society. So at least half the country, at least half the children in the country were either already below the poverty line, the relative poverty line, or were perilously above it. So it wasn't a huge surprise after the difficulties that the pandemic brought. You know, children weren't the face of the pandemic, but they were very severely hit by it and will continue to be very severely hit by what happened and it's no surprise that they lose out a lot because after the recession in 2008 the bankers recession we found uh, in a report by UNICEF we found that children are the age group that are most likely to fall into poverty after economic recession and at times of geo financial Difficulty. So more children have fallen in and that probably translates to around one in three children below the relative poverty line across the UK. But of course, you know, as with everything, that varies. And so in particular council wards in Liverpool, Middlesbrough, Bradford, you know, other parts of, of the country, we find that around 40 to 50 percent of children are living below the poverty line. So that probably translates to around 6 million children in the UK
0: so let's let's just ponder that so there's 6 million children in the UK that as a nation we haven't looked well after
1: at least but also we know that children who aren't necessarily below that threshold are perched above it and so families are having to make choices families are having to uh to cut in areas in order to just get through the day we've you know we, we talk in the paper about the the drivers for poverty and why families, particularly mothers, but families with children are at risk of poverty. And one of those things is the cost of living, which is all over every newspaper in the the country uh, at the moment and has been for the last couple of years. But even pre-pandemic, we were seeing that in order to feed your family according to government guidelines, it costs 72 pence out of every pound in your pocket after you've paid for accommodation and in Alice's work with uh, Sir Michael Marmot last year she found that it costs 72 pence out of every pound to f- to to heat your home if you are in the poorest decile so in the least affluent the most deprived decile what we're seeing is that we're asking people to pay 1 pound 44 out of every pound in their pocket, just on heating and eating. So something has to give, and the things that will give are the things that give children a happy, healthy childhood. Families are quite simply priced out of giving their children the best start in life because they are focusing on rent and heating and nutrition and the absolute essentials to get through the day.
0: That's well away from, I think, what the Joseph... Roundtree Foundation identified in 2022 uh, that the minimum income standard for a couple with two children would be Mm. £43,400. And
2: I think, you know, when you read that number, you think that's quite a high number. And that brings back to what Ian was saying, is that in comparison to so many other countries in Europe, we make having children just so expensive, completely, you know, unaffordable, and it's the children themselves that, that suffer from that as well.
1: They, they do, and we're hearing stories. I mean, you know, we, we have the honour and the privilege of, of working with people from all different works of life, um, and we, I'll never forget the story that a dinner lady Told me we we see dinner ladies as being that kind of interface between children deprivation nutrition and educational and uh, attainment you you know the dinner ladies are are absolutely crucial and we're hearing stories from them about children who aren't eligible for free school meals or don't have enough money on their on on their card and they have to make choices at the till and uh, at, at at school and they have to put things. Back on the shelf, or they're, or, or they're told that they can't have their meal that day, and that's one level that hits you, you know, right between the eyes. That's, the, you know, the idea of these children just slinking away without something to eat. You know, there is no leveling up that can happen when they're. Children are spending half their school time, you know, hungry. But the other thing that comes from that is that children themselves have recognised this as a problem. So there are many stories of dinner ladies looking out over the canteen to see children sharing their portions with each other. So the kids get it. The kids understand that this is uh, an unjust way for, for, for children to go through life. And we need to catch up. We need to be developing policies around universal healthy free school meals. We need to be developing policies even younger so that we can ensure that children going to reception are less likely to be... Uh, obese than they are now the obesity epidemic is is hitting the poorest communities far harder than it's hitting the rich communities, and the children can see this is happening, and yet our policies haven't caught up
0: mm. so this would be a good point to then go we've to what it is that we might be able to do about things. Could you start outlining at the as you did in the paper at which levels could we as health professionals intervene? what what is our role here
2: so we talk about incorporating child health inequalities to every aspect of providing your tra- your health service from boardroom to bedside every single step of that is just as vital as the next one so in terms of boardrooms making sure that everyone is represented at their highest echelons of healthcare employment as well, to advocate and to empower for different communities to have their voices heard when we're making decisions. And we talk a lot about the fact that the people with the money when we're dealing with these problems are often the people furthest away from the problems. So it's trying to readdress that imbalance within our hospitals or GP practices or wherever you work. And then the second thing is to work with communities and gather data, gather evidence. We've talked about the moral imperative. We've talked about the medical and the economic imperative. And I think a lot of the times we speak about is to provide evidence of what is happening. So looking at your own communities, looking at your own practices Making sure that you're gathering that data about where people are coming from and their journeys through their healthcare system as well is really important. And then we look at training the next generation for healthcare professionals, medical students, trainees, making sure this is incorporated into every syllabus so that, you know, you're not getting to, you know, so it's not just the consultants who have got the time to look into this and read about this. And this is a fundamental aspect of providing healthcare service and then the fourth aspect is advocating for our fa- patients as well and addressing those root causes of why health inequalities happen because as you know the example that Ian just said about the kids sharing their food in the in the dining room at school as a healthcare professional you can support that family to sign up to healthy sc- start vouchers you can support their nutrition you can get them a dietitian. but actually if you're not giving that family enough money so that their kid can buy food at the lunch canteen at school it's just going to be a sticking plaster what we do so we also really need to advocate for change at higher levels as well.
1: Mm. Uh, Alice in the in that third domain which you said which is about developing services that reduce Inequality and not widen inequality. We we've got some good examples of things that yeah. we've set up that you're involved with, like the Clean Air Clinic and the Parent Champion process. Yeah, yeah. How, how have you found those?
2: Absolutely great. Yeah. So my entry point into working with Ian and my fellowship was working with Parent Champions in the community. So it was an NHS England funded project with the. Know the impending bronchiolitis surge that we were all worried about after the relaxation of social distancing with COVID. And trying to address those inequalities, we know that the poorest children are hardest hit with bronchiolitis, they're more likely to attend healthcare services and require hospitalization with it as well. So it was once again trying to bring the money to the people who are facing the problems. So we hired 10 really great mums who had utilised children's centres themselves who were from the communities we were trying to reach and working with them. So we had, you know, training them about everything about respiratory health and bronchiolitis. And then them are training us about all of the issues that their community are facing, which will contribute to respiratory health inequalities and how to tackle those as well. So these parents work in children's centres, they're meeting Families every single day that we as medical professionals would just never reach. And as well as educating and empowering families on respiratory health, they've also got training so they can educate and train on breastfeeding, smoking cessation. But just as importantly, they have links to the Citizens Advice Social Prescribing Scheme. They can refer directly to them. They've had training from shelter, they've had training from energy action. So dealing with all of those wider, well, I say wider determinants of health, and more accurately the core determinants of health, to really go into the communities and address the, the inequalities where they're happening as well as just at the hospital. And then on the hospital side of things, I am lucky enough also to work with Ian in his clean air clinic where we receive referrals from health visitors, GPs, healthcare professionals in the hospitals, where they're seeing children with respiratory symptoms, where they think that their environment is a significant contributor. So a lot of the work that we do in the Clean Air Clinic is really focusing on the housing that a child lives in and the environmental pollution that that child is exposed to on a day-to-day basis, and to understand exactly how much of that is contributing to their respiratory symptoms. And really importantly, what can we do about it as well? And we know that renters in both housing association and council led renting or private renting are at highest risk of facing those um, issues with housing with mould and damp and cold temperatures, as well as more likely to live in areas of high outdoor air pollution as well. So working with councils and housing associations as well to educate them like this is how your building is damaging this child's health, and here is what you need to do.
0: I was just going to comment on that, Alice, so that it's it's about dialogue and co-design mm. rather than doing onto people. Um, that you know, however well intentioned that might be, in part yeah. is getting uh, away from our desks and and having dialogues with people who can who can help us try to yeah. help with these inequities.
2: I think as healthcare professionals, we're we're relatively late to the party in addressing those determinants of health that that sit in the community. And actually, if you go out and speak, you know, visit those communities, speak to those communities, you actually learn about all the different organisations who are already doing amazing work, trying to tackle these these social inequalities. And there's a lot to learn from them.
0: So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is we talked about this, is policies whose job would that be?
1: So, so, so we try and be apolitical when we talk about child poverty as health professionals, um, and it's kind of it's above party politics, but it is a political issue. It's a political choice for children to live in poverty because it means that we've prioritised something else. It's a political choice that there are health inequalities and differences in mortality in infants and babies and children because we've prioritized something else and so the key thing really is i think as pediatricians we think our argument is is watertight but clearly it's not always landed and in answer to your question we've all got a responsibility within this you know not everybody can turn up at the house of commons and start sort of you know, writing legislation but we do need a seat at the table as paediatricians when that legislation is happening so some examples would be you know I can speak off from personal experiences that we're currently involved as paediatricians in writing Awab's Law which is a, a legislation around social housing in response to the tragic death of a little boy in the north of England whose social housing was absolutely not just not fit for purpose but ultimately the cause of his is is death. When we think about air quality, we've seen doctors working alongside Rosamond Kissy Deborah, who's done some fantastic work since her daughter died of an asthma attack in in London. And the coroner, more recently, after a decade of of relentless campaigning by this mother, the coroner has now added air pollution as a contributing factor to her death. When we look at what's happening with universal free school meals, uh, we're doing some good work around this, but that's because we're linking with MPs who have a voice in Parliament who can raise these issues. You know, to put that in context, we looked at the number of times that children were discussed in the Houses of Parliament. This was a pretty rough and ready and dirty look at this on the Hansard uh, database, which is freely available, and children are discussed 0.5% of the time. So there isn't a voice for children in Parliament unless we find MPs who are prepared to go out on a limb and say things on behalf of children. And... If we think about other campaigns that need to happen, these are often things that are that, that communities are calling for our help for. So for a long time, we've been dumping landfill, you know, toxic, carcinogenic, dangerous waste next to where working class children live, both in this country and abroad. And it's time that we start to address that. There's no better time to look at landfill sites than there is right now when people are more focused on the environment than than we have been in the past. So I think it's everybody's responsibility, but our responsibility here isn't as activists, it's as healthcare professionals. We've got Uh, activists who are very good at what they do and what they need from us is our voice based on evidence, based on our lived experience as healthcare professionals and based on tying together the problems that people are telling us uh, in terms of their daily lives with the problems that we're seeing in public health data which mean that people in the poorest communities are 15-20 years like less likely to, you know, to live 20, 15, 20 years less long than people in the richest communities. It's important that we bring our voice to that table in a variety of, of, of methods. And as I say, that involves linking with politicians. It involves linking with communities. It involves linking with cultural and societal icons. Artists like Banksy, filmmakers like Ken Loach, rappers like Stormzy, these people can describe things in a way that we... As doctors, you know, we're just, that's not our skill set. So we have to be bringing our voice to those tables.
2: Yeah. We've got fantastic people like Ian and also our president, Camilla Kingdon, at those big national governmental level tables, having those conversations, which is wonderful. But I would also say that, you know, at any level, you can put a mirror up to our own practice and you can impact policy at your local hospital level as well, you know, looking at how much you're expecting people to pay just to attend your clinic, looking at your outcomes, looking at your waiting lists, and really reflecting that back onto the people who make the decisions at your departmental or your hospital level as well.
1: I completely agree, Alice. And one more addition to the list of people who have a responsibility, Rachel, and um, I, I think archives does as well. And, and I really think that you as a journal have taken on this mantle and you're publishing some really good good pieces on this, and, you know, including this piece, and th- you know, thank you for that. I think one of the things that strikes me is that there is a lack of confidence amongst paediatricians about reading a paper, understanding medical literature, and then you know, potentially standing up and arguing a, a standpoint based on what you've read. Uh, and I know that archives is well-read, by junior doctors, by consultant paediatricians, by allied health professionals, by others. Uh, and I do really find it quite heartening that that your journal is prioritising these issues as well. I think you've got a really important part to play and, and a really important responsibility in this, in this story.
0: Thanks, Ian. I think there's a translation of what is our responsibility and where we sit, what is it that we can do? Whereas it might be easy to just hang our heads in despair and say, oh, it's too big, can't do anything. As between Alice and, and yourself, you've identified things that each one of us can actually do. So what I'd like to ask listeners is to, to think about where you sit in the system, our society, and what is it that you can do, and then just go do it. Find the people don't need to do it alone. There's expertise and there are people you can be with in dialogue. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of disease and childhood. The paper discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode release. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe on one of your preferred platforms to get the podcast directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month.